if you are in, in a industry that is advancing quickly, the main thing to do is just get lawyers that tell that always say, hey, what you're doing is fully legal. I don't know what the other guys are talking about. I would interview lawyers and say, your job at this firm is to tell me how to do what I want to do lawfully. Never tell me what I'm doing is illegal because it's not, right? You are not here as an agent of the government. You are not a monitor. You're not my conscience. You are an employee. Your job is to be my gladiator. That's how Uber happened. And then there'll be someone saying, oh, I used AI in order to go and make a movie. I used AI to go and save money on my bills. Once you go and read what they're doing, you're like, yeah, 99.9% of people can never do that. It's got to become not just a bit easier, it has to become like a thousand times easier before a normal person would ever do it. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University, the writer of the Bet on It Substack, and the author of many interesting books, including the one we'll be talking about today, at least primarily. Um, Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Irrationality. This is the second time uh, Brian has come on the show, and I'm very glad to have him on again. We discuss the left and right, pricing books, publishing, effective altruism, the difference between AI safety and AI ethics, Cowan uh, and Straussianism, whether people should be more or less utilitarian about the things they care about, technological adoption, and whether people have over-optimistic or over-pessimistic expectations of technology. If you like the show, the best thing you can do to help us out is to recommend it to a friend, either in person or online. Hopefully, not only are you just helping us out, but you're also helping your friend, probably someone with similar interests, similar hobbies, find something that he or she enjoys, and is also helping them learn more about the world. You can also help the show by leaving a five-star review, commenting, and suggesting some further guests. And if you want an episode every Monday, subscribe to the show as well. Without further ado, here's Brian Kaplan. So I think a very interesting point to start. A lot of people who are older than me tell me about this, where they can remember a distinct point in time where it was kind of normal to know who your neighbors are. And now, now it's not right now. Many people, especially if you live in cities, you have no idea. Like I have no idea, you know, actually one, one of the families next to mine, I know. And then the other, uh, I, I just have never interacted with. Um, do you remember a point in time where that transition kind of happened from knowing your neighbors and not knowing your neighbors? And if so, when? I can tell you the names of all the neighbors in my childhood neighborhood with no problem. And then... Right. For, for the audience, Oh, sorry? For your audience, if you don't mind, around what year would that have been? That would have been from 1971 to 1989. So, you know, the time that I would have been aware would basically be the 1980s. Right. And then... I'll say that there's never been a time since, well, when I really knew my neighbors. I guess when I was in the dorms, I normally knew who was on either side of me. That, I would say. But once I was actually in student housing or married student housing at Princeton, yeah, then I normally didn't know. And then I'll say, yeah, apartments I never knew. I mean, in my own neighborhood, I do know all the families in the street, although normally not by name. It's just like, okay, he's that one. (laughs) 
Really? Yeah, someone has to have kids before you become fully human for me. <laughs> yeah. Then it's a matter of I'm arranging play dates between your kids and my kids. But other than that, then I guess I don't honestly have that much use for you. Right. So, so you still kind of have that attachment. That's interesting. Uh, so, so the reason I ask this is that it kind of ties into, I think, my theory of left and right, which is maybe a bit closer to Robin's, although different from both of yours. Um, actually, to, to start this off, uh, tell the audience what your theory of left and right is. It, it, it is beautiful in that it's very, very straightforward. Should we start by telling them who I am? Sorry? Should we start by telling them who I am? Uh, sure. The, I, I hope <laughs> most of my audience has a familiarity of... Well, I'm hoping to broaden my scope so. here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> yeah, so I am Brian Kaplan. I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University. I blog for Bet On It. And I am the author of the new book... Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Irrationality. And I believe you're asking me about one of the topics that I put into that book, which I call my simplistic theory of left and right. It's an answer to the question, on some fundamental level, what's the difference between left and right? Some way that transcends the politics of the day, where it's not just for one country, not just for one time period. What is the difference between left and right? And my answer, which is admittedly simplistic, that's built into the title, actually, it's capital S simplistic, is this. The left is anti-market and the right is anti-left. Right. And I think I actually just listened to this this morning, your interview with Richard Hanania. I really mm-hmm. liked it. But uh, you go more into the criticisms there. I want to really dive into kind of an alternative theory of right and left that maybe encompasses more of the social issues. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of the cases, it's um, libertarians kind of want to want to avoid interference from everyone, right? Coercive <laughs> interference from everyone. Um, but I think the main difference between left and right uh, is mostly that people on the left would prefer to be interfered with by people further away. And people on the right would prefer to be interfered with by people who are closer. And, you know, like interfered with, maybe that's not exactly the, the way that they would phrase it, right? But the kind of right-wing institutions, church, local government, family, right? They don't really care if the local church is kind of like um, against gay marriage, for example, whereas the left is much more amenable to kind of uh, faraway interference, partly because they're more effective in controlling the levers of faraway interference. But that's where, um, that's the kind of thing that they would uh, be a fan of, right? And I think that this, on, on one hand, does sort of both capture some of the more nuances in terms of uh, in terms of when the left is not as anti-market, right? Like uh, Yimbies, they don't like the they don't like the homeowners associations. They don't like the uh, they don't like the local ordinances, um, as well as capturing where the right is uh, in many cases for more government intervention, right? When it comes to kind of social family values, that kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah, honestly, I'm going to say I find pretty much no value in your story. At best, it's a theory of what's going on right now in America. I don't think it's got much historical value. I don't think it's got much international value. But I would just say that preferring the faraway bossiness to the local bossiness is almost totally strategic. For example, during COVID, then suddenly you've got a lot of Republicans who want to go and stand up for individual states' rights and states where they're in control. But on the other hand, if you are in a blue city in a red state, 
then I'd say that the conservative view is, yeah, let's let's have state preemption. Let's let the governor of Texas or Florida say what my local school district can do. I think it's almost totally strategic. There's very little actual sincerity in people's preferences for the level. I mean, there's a tiny bit, but I just don't think there's really very much. And yeah, I, mean, I think your point about how the left prefers to deal with the highest levels of government because they tend to have more influence there, that if there is anything to it, captures it. But again, if in times when you've got Republican control of the federal government, then suddenly you'll see that state governments say we got lots of state rights. And Do you think there's anything in, intrinsic to the Republican preference for local control, though? Right. Like, why why do they have more local control? Why do they seek it more? Right. Like there's there's a causation story here. Right? Yeah, I don't even sure know that's trivial. true. I would say that when it's a matter of public schools, for example, Republicans normally will say, look, if I'm in a Republican state, it's still going to be true that the school district will be run by leftists. So I want the state government to go and wrangle these leftists for me and make them get rid of the mask mandates and set what the curriculum is. So yeah, I don't think that this is even clearly going on right now, much less something that could explain left versus right in a longer time period or across a lot of countries. Whereas in my story, like, and again, like, you know, my story is not intended to be a universal descriptor. It's not intended to be the way that people self-consciously see themselves. I'm just trying to come up with a description that captures as much of the data as you can in a short description. So the way the thought experiment that I have is imagine you have a giant leftist convention and we got time travel as well as planes so we can get people from, on the left from the last 200 years from all over the world. And then they have to write a compromise statement. And I say that compromise statement is going to be a bunch of complaints about markets. On the other hand, if you have the giant comparable right-wing convention, there's going to be a lot of, of complaints about markets among the right-wing. They exist, but they won't be able to get that into their compromise statement because there'll be other right-wingers that don't agree with it. What they will be able to agree on is a bunch of complaints about the left. And that's my story. Right. So that's 200... 200 years, that's an interesting cutoff, right? Because yeah, well, I mean, I that's was... deliberate because our whole idea of left versus right essentially comes from the placement of legislators in the French parliament after the French Revolution. Right. I was going to say, like, pre, pre-French Revolution, many of the people who were considered left wing uh, were basically classical liberals, right? They were people who opposed, um, they were very libertarian in a way, right, relative to other people who were kind of arguing for um, more essentially monarchy, more top-down control. Um, I mean, what I say is before the French Revolution, we just don't have this notion of left versus right. And then there was a period of considerable sure. confusion, uh, which is why I have that 80% threshold. What could we get an 80% vote on? It's true, for example, Frederick Bastiat, one of the best libertarians who ever lived, he sat on the left in the French legislature, even though he was complaining about socialism as his bread and butter. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, but even so... Like, as I said, it's not intended to be a perfect story. No one's got a perfect story. I'm just trying to fit as much of the data as I can in a simple theory. And I think that my story succeeds better than the other ones, which usually just honestly don't pass even a basic test. Like uh, the the, uh, Scott Alexander survive thrive theory didn't originate it, but he's been pushing it saying, all right, well, rightism is what you get when people are trying to survive. Leftism is what you get when people are trying to thrive. So like that just doesn't fit at all. We see yeah, it, it's very yeah. funny yeah. because uh, I've told a bunch of EAs this. When I first heard that, I, I thought, oh, yeah, that makes a ton of sense, right? Yeah. Right, like conservatism yeah. or at least libertarianism is when you want to thrive and kind of redistribution is when you want to survive. Um, but apparently he meant it in the exact opposite way, yeah. which is pretty funny. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's bizarre on so many levels. And most obviously, the most radical left-wing governments have always been on societies on the edge of survival, which is why when they collect right, exactly. agriculture, millions of people die. Also, during wars, when survival's at stake, the normal thing is to move to very far left-wing economic policies, nationalization, intense regulation. That's the way the world actually works. I tell you, Scott is really just hyper overgeneralizing from being in the Bay Area and acting like that <laughs> is the canonical left. And it's not. It's a really weird ouch, uh, offshoot. I mean, it's, I'll, I'll put it in the general left-wing family. By the way, on the Yimbies, this is one where you really need to distinguish your technocratic EA internet leftists from real ones. So yeah, like it's true. The MB movement is very left-wing, but it's a very tiny splinter of the left. Very vocal. I love you guys. Thank you for doing what you're doing, but you are not representative in any way, much more representative of the left-wing view on housing regulation. is just your typical California NIMBY saying, we don't want to let a bunch of rich fat, rich fat cats develop here. They're going to ruin the environment and destroy the neighborhood. And they're only after money, blah, blah, blah. That is the typical left-wing view. There's even so like a great paper by see mm, blanking on his name but uh yeah yeah ucla economist uh who just went and looked at california and said yeah it's the more the more left-wing the city is the worse the nimby rules are right um is that really causal though right like uh well as having grown up in california i'm convinced that it is you know so now another ucla researcher michael manville has this uh great post where rather great article where he actually gave the two versions of the same survey question randomly to his sample. And the one, basically in both cases was about, should you allow a certain development given certain details? The one variation was you either do or don't add on. It will allow the, the developer will earn large profits. And when you do that support crashes, when you <laughs> that the developer will earn right. large profits, never mind right. provides, you know, cheap, uh, cheap real estate helps the board, blah, blah, blah. No, no. What matters is there's some fat cat making money. No way. I will never allow this. I think this really does capture this anti-market attitude, which, I mean, by the way, many people misunderstand my, my simplistic theory of saying that the left hates markets or always opposed to them. I don't say that. You know, antipathy. Antipathy, it's a more moderate term, just indicating an aversion or a revulsion. And the way I like to think about it is this. Can you get leftists to say something good about markets? Yes, I'm an economist. I've heard plenty of left-wing economists say something good about markets, but they can't stop there. They have to tack on a criticism before they stop talking, uh, which see, is yeah. a sign of antipathy. Right? If you said, what do you think about mothers? It's like, all right, well, mothers, they do so many wonderful things for kids and they, you know, they the birthdays and they give birth and they raise them. The end. That's actually being, <laughs> that's like what a person who's pro-motherhood says person who has antipathy from others could say all that and say, however, they're also notoriously naggy and clingy. And so we must be careful before we render any unmitigated praise of them. It's like, ah, now. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like the machine learning model, right? It's like, as an LLM, I have to, as a left-wing LLM, I have to oppose markets. markets. We must never simply have a paragraph of praise and stop. We must always complaints. And the same thing goes for the rights antipathy for the left. If you were to go and say, well, hasn't the left done good things like Social Security? You're not going to get a right-wing person to say, oh, yes, that was great. Good for them. Thank you, left. They're going to tack on, but we also have to remember the horrible things they're doing. There's gender mutilation of the children. And there's this. And it's like, <laughs> that's about Social Security. Can't you just 
give them one, throw them the bone, and then move on? Like, no, I cannot because I feel antipathy and my antipathy is not satisfied. If I simply answer your question and stop, I have to tack on some complaining. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure that, like, in both directions, right? In both, like, kind of being being more anti-market and being able to at least adopt kind of maybe things that aren't as associated with the left wing anymore, like, say, labor unions, right? Which I do think are certainly associated with the left, but oh, yeah. maybe some conservatives yeah, I mean, don't think so. Like, yeah. people like Orrin Cass, right? Mm-hmm. So Rob Amari, they're willing to praise labor unions and say, like, okay, the, these are good. But being, like, both anti-market and pro, you know, organizations that are traditionally associated with the left. Do, do you think that, that that's just kind of like a blip in history, that, that you know, it's, it's, it's the exception, uh, not necessarily the rule? I think it's, it's very strategic. It comes down to the realization of the right, well, we've got to make friends. And who could we possibly make friends with? Well, how about socially conservative but economically liberal members of labor unions? That sounds like a very promising effort. You know, a general thing about being in politics is you're looking to make more friends and you're profiling saying, who could we flip? Like for a very long time, Catholics were totally democratic in the United States. And then in the 70s, probably a lot to do with Roe versus Wade and things like that. Republicans realized, wait a second, we can flip these people. And they started doing it. Right? So, And if you want to flip a group, you start by buttering them up. You start by trying to find something in common. This is the path of victory, of course, is you got to make friends with people who are currently not your friends. You need to reach out to them. This can work if you've actually got something in common and there's something bad about the people they're currently affiliated with and you basically give them the, oh God, I would never treat you that way. I would treat, I would love you. I would treat you just so, that kind of thing. <laughs> so whenever you see a party managing to flip a demographic, that's the kind of way that they treat them during this inter, you know, interim period when they are open to persuasion but not yet persuaded. So I think that's what's going on with unions you can see this, you know, not in any way to compare Orrin Cass to the Nazis, but this is the way the Nazis work too. They want to go and distinguish the evil Marxist Jewish intellectuals from the good, honest German trade union member and say, look, you know, these people do not look like they have seduced you. They tricked you. They speak in your name, but they don't. You love Germany. They hate Germany. We love Germany too. You should be with us classic way of trying to win over labor unions for a certain kind of right-wing party. Right. I think, yeah, to, to kind of praise your theory, I think a lot of how a lot of theories um, kind of get wrong is that they have to be a duality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, is that like, I think more so it's more of the different parties compete on different axes. Yeah. Than sort of, and they're talking past each yeah. other. And this exactly, is exactly. so much trouble understanding each other. I remember when I was explaining this to a journalist, he's saying, don't you mean the left is anti-market and the right is pro-market. And I said, no, that's only what a leftist would think. If you listen to right-wing people, you see they have lots of complaints about markets. Yes, there are the pro-market right-wing people, but there's lots of anti-market right-wing people too. They think of themselves in this way. They have lots, like, I'm not pro-business. I'm not for fat cats. I'm for regular people. This is a big part of the identity of a lot of right-wing people. So it's like, well, then what is it that the that Milton Friedman could have in common with Donald Trump? And it's like, yeah, they just don't like the left. Those people, they, they are aggravated. And let's like, can you really just have an alliance based on that negativity? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, we all don't like Joe. So that brings us together to go and get Joe. Yeah, it, it truly is the Let's Go Brandon Coalition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, what was that? 
It truly is the Let's Go Brandon Coalition. Ah, uh, the you, Let's you know Go that Brandon is? Coalition. Yeah. Um, right. For the audience, it's basically mm-hmm. like there was um, there was this, I think, like NASCAR race where um, all of the people in the background were shouting F Joe Biden. And then a CNN reporter went, I think like the person who won the race was like Brandon. It's, and the CNN reporter with like these cheer, these like chants of let's of like F Joe Biden in the background were saying like something like, Oh, can't you hear they're cheering you on? They're saying you saying, let's go Brandon. And uh, this kind of spun out. It became like the meme. The first order meme was just like right wingers posting about it. And then the second order meme is, you know, like people in our circles, mostly like Richard Janania, you know, using this as just kind of a, as kind of a shorthand for the part of the right that, Mm -hmm. Um, that basically views hatred of the left as like the only unifying goal. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I would agree that hatred of the left is more intense and it's an even bigger deal now than it normally has been historically, but still you can see this just binding together right-wing forces for a couple of centuries where when there's a socialist revolution, it's like, okay, everybody who doesn't like that, let's all get together. And normally you do see that. Right. Or similarly, you know, you know, there's a lot of people who want to go and say, OK, well, the Nazis really left wing because it's a National Socialist Party. And then obviously there's many left wing people who want to say, no, no, the Nazis, the Nazis are not socialist at all. That's just total false advertising that somehow managed to fool 40 percent of the German population by the end or by the time that they're getting power. And I say, look, there is a kind of right wing socialism. It, it's exists for for a very long time and it comes down to we don't like you internationalist marxist socialists you guys are terrible you're left wing but it's totally fine to be a socialist as long as you are a citizen of your country first mussolini is the key figure here who transitions from being the leader of the far left wing of the italian socialist party before world war one to the founder of fascism and what goes on is he was actually editor of People of Italy and was writing a daily editorial during the early years of World War I. So we can actually see Mussolini's thought evolving day by day. This is covered uh, with great verve in the A. James Gregor book, uh, Mussolini and the Intellectual Origins of Fascism. Anyway, uh, what you see in this book is that Mussolini starts off as this typical Leninist type, internationalist, socialist, revolutionary defeatist, saying a working man of no country. But then the war goes on and he's like, I can't just stand neutral when like in this case, like there's Italians who are oppressed under Austrian rule. Italy must join forces to go and, and liberate these fellow Italians. And then we must make Italy a strong, great country and put the fat cats in their place, but not destroy them because we need these guys to go and make our weapons and run the industries. We don't want to wipe them out. We want to tame them. We want to bridle them to turn big business from this international force that exploits Italy into a Italian force that serves Italy. This is what you can actually see Mussolini's thought evolving to, which then obviously winds up influencing Hitler mightily as the first successful fascist state. Right. Uh, a quick detour. Do you think the price your book sells for is that, is that equilibrium? Yeah, that's a good question. Obviously, so I'm selling it for $12 for the paperback on Amazon, $9.99 for the ebook. In terms of whether this is actually the profit maximizing price, it's just really hard to know. This is obviously a case of monopoly here. So, you know, like I can, and also nicely illustrates the fact that just because you have a monopoly on something doesn't mean you're going to make a lot of money off of it. That depends on demand. Yeah, it also depends on how you measure it, right? It's like, 
you're the only one who has the right to your writing. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're the only one writing about like uh, about political economy. Yes, right. Like there, there are other people writing about political. Right, but there's a lot. So basically, there's a lot of people who buy this book that wouldn't buy even a similar book by another person. On the other hand, of course, there's a ton of people who would buy this book if it was written by someone much more famous that won't buy it for me. In terms of whether I'm making a pricing mistake. It's one where I think I'm close enough to the profit maximizing point that I don't, don't think it's that worth going and fiddling with it. It would be really hard to go and do an experiment that would be at all meaningful. I can't go and randomly change the price at a given point in time. If I change the price over time, then there's this confound of, well, you're raising the price a couple of weeks after the release. So maybe sales are falling just because you've already tapped into the main customers. My yeah. long run plan is once the whole series is out, or if the inflation, you know, if the inflation continues, then I won't wait that long. But basically, if inflation gets back down to a normal level, I'll probably sell all eight books in the series for this price initially, and then once I think I've tapped that out, I'll raise the price a bit, and then have the whole series available for as a package for you know, ninety bucks or something like that. So with a small discount if you buy all eight. Yeah, and to and to give a sort of indirect endorsement, I think it's really underpriced right like nine i got the online version mm-hmm. for 9.99 mm-hmm. that's that to me is just like a very low price to pay for this much material um i don't know maybe my standards yeah, I think of just the marginal set. customer is going to be uh, young yeah. with tons of other things to do with their spare time so i'm just trying to get a price that's low enough where they'll say all right that's that's barely anything i'll go and pay for that um, it's also true that amazon has rules for the way for basically the share that I get. So if I raise the price much above this, then the Amazon share goes up quite a bit. So oh, I, interesting. Yeah. So I, I thought about this when I did the first book and then I have not reviewed anything else since then. It's something where you know, basically if I did not have the free services of a research assistant the, who can, I can give the chore parts of this book to, then it totally wouldn't be worth it to me as it is. Then it's probably just about enough. I mean, it's you know, like, I, I would, I generally make more from one serious talk than I make from a whole book. I, I also have this hope of the book as a lost leader where, you know, basically you know, if this book gets read and it gets me one extra talk, then that doubles the profit from, <laughs> from the book. Right. So, right. That makes so, sense. So there's that. Makes that. Sense. I mean, honestly, a lot of it is just the pride of, I thought that I wrote some really good essays over the course of 18 years. And I don't think they're very likely to be read by anyone going through everything I ever wrote to go and find one of the best 5% of things. This way I'm able to go and curate them. I honestly, I had a lot of fun just going through everything I wrote for the 18 years and then coming up with a big spreadsheet of where everything goes. I like that. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so actually <laughs> to, to think about the AI um, debate a little bit, I, I do think the kind of revealed, uh, both my own revealed preferences and kind of like the revealed preferences of people who I'm uh, working with now kind of do reflect uh, your theory quite well. Like the best way to like really motivate, you know, motivate right-wingers to, to like think about AI policy is like, oh, they're making the AI woke. Yep. And then the best way- <laughs> You got it, bingo. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. It's like, it's it's the clickbait title in my article, right? That's exactly it. That's the revealed preference- um, and then the left-wing version, I don't know if the left-wing version is particularly anti-market, right? Like the kind of left-wing propaganda for regulating AI is either, you know, it's going to cause misinformation 
uh, which is actually true. And uh, or like it's going to be racist. Um, and by that, they mean it will uh, disabuse people of misinformation with regard uh, with regards to um, some things that left wingers believe. I think, I think, I think you're forgetting like, a few the other market side arguments. maybe is not as strong yeah. there. I think you're forgetting a few other big left wing objections. Uh, it's going to cause mass unemployment. Right. So there's that one. And then big business is going to use it to go and make money off of us. Standard one. Is anyone complain? Is anyone really saying, you know, like open AI shouldn't make money? Like, like, is that a real complaint that left wingers have? I haven't maybe, maybe one down, have. But, but let, let me put it this way. So I read the nation quite regularly, just a short amount after the COVID vaccines came out, the nation ran a piece saying we should take every penny of profit away from the pharmaceutical companies. That was their reaction. They've been talking about how terrible COVID was for over a, for a year. And then when the, when the remedy comes, the reaction is not even to have like a brief celebratory period of yay, but to instantly say, there's some greedy fat cats making money off of this. Let's take all, the, take all their profits because tax Yeah, they were funded. selling vaccines for what, like $20? Like, yes. like seriously? <laughs> but, you know, like, like, but this, like, again, I will not say the nation is speaks for all leftists, but I think they do speak for ideological leftists, people who really believe the philosophy. And it was to me just a very revealing moment. It's one where it's like, there's, it doesn't matter how good or how well business does. You just have so much resentment of them and you just hate the idea of someone making money. You just want to take it from them and get, and and basically give all the credit to governments, even if it's a government that you don't really like, but you, in some metaphysical sense, the left identifies with government even when it's Republican government more than they identify with business. It's probably not as metaphysical as it seems because I think the left on some level knows that they control 90% of the bureaucracy even during Republican administrations. Right. Yeah. It's interesting to me because I think especially when talking to kind of like normie Republicans, when talking to kind of like professional Republicans, uh, either kind of like successful entrepreneurs well obviously mm-hmm. you have selection bias there but also so you don't mean you don't mean politicians or people or people work with politicians by professional republican you mean like a successful person who happens to be republican uh yeah yeah pretty much okay um yeah they're much more they're going to be much more libertarian right like the republican elite are going to be more libertarian are more pro-market mm-hmm. whereas the whereas kind of like the median republican voter maybe not so much right yeah, I think, yeah there's, there's a lot to that i mean even of course among republican politicians there's a lot of mixed feelings but nevertheless like one thing that we know is that the reason why trump's effort to restrict immigration failed is the so-called pro-business republicans who say hey i've got some important supporters who run businesses that require immigrants and like they're good guys and they're just trying to run a business. So I'm not going to be, get behind this. And, yeah, they, and they are, they are, they are they basically, they are the swing votes that keeps bad stuff from happening. Yeah. What's, what's very interesting is that in terms of economic damage, maybe the kind of COVID era Trump um, legal immigration rules were perhaps even more destructive. Right. Like, right. Although those were similar to what almost every rich country did during COVID is just let's go and scapegoat immigrants and, the obvious fact that we could just say you can still immigrate, but with a quarantine period. No, 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 no. We don't have time to think about anything like that. Let's just stop all immigration. That was basically what every country that I know of did during COVID was stop immigration. On this point of what a you know, what's going on in the Republican elite, I've got a 
story I want to share with you, which uh, I consider awesome. pretty, I consider pretty hilarious. So I so I was once at basically what you consider a right wing cabal meeting. So sort of like on The Simpsons where they have Count Chocula, Rainier Wolfcastle, Krusty <laughs> uh, the Clown, all the Republicans of Springfield. So I was at a group like this. And then there was a Republican legislator, I think from South Carolina, but anyway, you know, somewhere in the South. And he got, gets up in front of, of the group. He only has two minutes to talk. And he says, you know what's wrong with politics? We need more businessmen in politics. We need people who know business. You know, my lawyer, she, my sister, she a lawyer. She agreed with me. <laughs> and we got too many lawyers. So that guy, I was like, well, I like this guy. He's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, he wasn't very articulate or anything, but it's like, yeah, like this guy seems like he's not terrible. Right, right. So like, I, I think in general, maybe this plays into kind of like Richard Hanania's theory of like elite uh, reaction, right? Where the dynamics are maybe reversed in the elite circles, right? In, in like elite elite conservative circles, people are kind of like very explicitly pro-market. And in like elite liberal circles, they're very explicitly mm-hmm. kind of like anti-conservative or like anti, anti, you know, like this is the whole like disinformation thing, right? Just like, look at how dumb, like, like the David Pakman show is a very good example of mm-hmm. this, right? Look at the dumb shit Republicans are up to today. You wouldn't want to be like that, would you? That's such a stupid party, mm-hmm. you know, like, like that's the sentiment of that show. Right. And, and to me, it's like very effective. That to me is a much more effective uh, message than, you know, like what, whatever they're, they're like, whatever the left wing policies is. Right. Yeah. So, again, I don't know this particular show, but I would say I generally see that in elite left wing thoughts, it fits the story very well. Like, again, to go back to the nation, if you, of course, they've got a bunch of anti-Republican articles and they got a bunch of anti-market articles. But I would say if you just read their their, their New magazine for a while, you realize, wow, they seem to have about as much hatred for Jeff Bezos, a guy who in some sense is on their side as they do for Donald Trump. And it's like, how can that be? Like, like, but like, they seem to be so angry at Jeff Bezos, despite every good thing he does, Bill Gates, you know, like a, like a rich guy can go and save a million lives. He can be supporting the Democrats and they'll still say, look, I don't like the way that a rich person can have all this extra influence just by going and donating money. That's wrong. They're bad. It's like, wow. Right, but like the elite level, I think like the elite level of like liberals is, um, is more like the New York Times, right? So like, what does the New York Times mm-hmm. think about like Jeff Bezos versus like Donald Trump and like misinformation, right? Like, like what does Ezra Klein think about mm-hmm. like markets yeah, Ezra, so Ezra, you know, I'm like, going to count as being a more a much more unusual figure. Sure, sure. Um, we can yes, take Ezra Klein yes. out of it. Yeah, but New York Times again, like in terms of if you just went through the editorials and just see like how much bad stuff do they say about Jeff Bezos? You know, like I'm 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 confident they say more bad about Trump in their case. But still, it's like, why are you mad at Bezos at all? What has this guy done exactly that's objectionable? And yet it was like, look, he started the greatest store in history. It gives fantastic deals. It makes life really convenient. And you're getting mad over what? Just because he's like gotten super rich doing something awesome for people? Like, why do you hate this guy? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. But like, the, yeah, I mean, the he point- hates too strong. Antipathy, antipathy. I don't think the New York Times wants to go and see Jeff Bezos dead or anything like that. I think they would like to see him cut down to size. That's yeah, yeah. What, what they're sort of. I, I don't think it's a kind idea. of. It's an inversion on the axis, or like it's a rotation on the axes. Mm-hmm. It's not like 
it, it's not like uh, it's not like elite Republicans are suddenly you know like pro leftist either. Yeah. Right. Like it, right. it's it's the shift in focus. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that I do think like my original case like persists. Right. Is that is that there's a shift in focus when comparing kind of normal Republicans to elite Republicans, where they go from being anti-leftist primarily and then like maybe pro-market secondarily mm-hmm. to being pro-market explicitly pro-market uh, pr- primarily and then anti-leftist secondarily. Whereas in uh, in liberal circles, if you go to the more elite level, they're kind of explicitly anti-rightist and uh, secondarily anti-market, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the main thing I would say is that among elites, you just get more extreme views of all kinds. Like the distribution of opinion is just stretched among the elite. Is, uh, is the that story, true? The story, is, is the yeah. New York Times more extreme than I like the median Democratic voter I'm, on like I'm economic all, policies? I'm, I th- so that's actually a good one. So on economic policies, it's a little bit le- less clear, although I think these days it would be so, although that's um, where, you know, where it's really clear is on the social policy. That's good. Yeah, for, for sure. That. For sure. I mean, in the case of, of you know, right wing elites, I would say that you're probably hanging out with the very free market part of that group. I've seen a, a, a wider sample. I've seen groups where you have just right wingers disagreeing. I think the, probably the typical view among the right is more of just apathy or apathy about markets or just not caring very much. They're not angry about markets, but they're also not enthusiastic. They're more, you know, they're sort of like one cheer for capitalism people. But then it's true that you do have the two cheers and three cheers for capitalism people among the right-wing elites. And if you're an economist, you tend to meet those people more. But when you go outside of your comfort zone and you know, go to CPAC or something like that, and that's where you'll see, wow, there's tons of right-wingers who have a lot of reservations about markets and want to complain about markets, but they want to complain about it in a non-left-wing way. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to go and use funny. the same talking points. They want to go and, but, and, and yet it's one where sometimes it's like, but it's, it's kind of seems like what you're saying is similar to what the left is saying. And a person who listens to that, it's very much a rerun of what I was saying before, where they may say, look, I agree with some of the, what the left is saying about how markets have harmed community, but we need to remember the trends uh, the surgeries yeah. and like, and then get off onto that. And it's like, okay, so you're never going to actually be friendly with these people, but nevertheless, you can admit that there is a lot of overlap in some areas. I mean, something that something that has occurred to me is like, where do I fit in all this? And the honest answer is, I obviously fit in on the right wing side of this. And it's like you're like you're putting in yourself in with Donald Trump and a bunch of bad people. And I'm like, look, look, it's a big group, like very diverse. It's an umbrella group, but obviously that's where I fit. And one of the strong pieces of evidence in my mind is this: I have a lot of individual left wing thinkers who like my work and have been kind to me and have helped me and, and boosted me but I've received pretty much zero institutional support from the left. There's no left-wing group that's ever doesn't, doesn't, done anything good. Really? Whereas among the right, here, like even groups that would have a, a lot of disagreements with a lot of what I've done still give me a forum and give me a really nice introduction and are nice to me. You know, not, of course, like Center for Immigration Studies where their whole thing is being anti <laughs> But, you know, like I've given, you know, talks for the Heritage Foundation and people show up there and say, I don't agree with you on everything, Brian, but you're really good on this. Like, okay, great. Right, let's, let's go and have a talk. And you can see that there is this sociological feature of it where I'm on this side in some sense and they feel comfortable with me, unless, of course, their whole lives are about being against me on something where we disagree. But other than that, it's like, yeah, he's a cool guy. And you, look, you can be an anarchist and still get invited up to their their podium because it's like, well, like, he's obviously not a leftist, so I guess he's with us. 
Yeah. Uh, have you had any interactions with the uh, effective altruism people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, you know, a lot. And again, like the individuals are really good. I've done talks for clubs. I've never been invited to go and give like a plenary talk or for some major meeting of EA. I'd be happy to do it. So then, you know, I have a piece called The Good Group saying how EA clubs are great. I feel like in real time, I'm seeing them get worse. Uh, you, you may remember Richard and had a piece saying EA has to become anti-woke or die. I think there's a lot to this. I mean, yeah, as soon, I, I yeah, as, soon like, as you say, like, there's a problem, we're, be, we're not being inclusive enough. It's like, yeah, well, because saying that we need to do careful cost-benefit analysis and be evidence-based and suppress emotions and not listen to people crying and ignore emotional appeals, that's that, that excludes all those people that do that kind of stuff. And let them go to their regular crummy charities that don't accomplish anything. EA is for a certain kind of person that cares about results. And, and once you go and accept the attitude of the broader society of we need to care a lot about someone who a particular person who is unhappy about a petty grievance, then it's like, well, that's kind of the beginning of the end of this group of this group as a movement. Yeah, I kind of like I think like in my head, if we did, you know, if we did like the embeddings, if we did like the word vector thing, <laughs> right? Um, I, I kind of see EA as related to uh, leftism in the same way that kind of like smart libertarians are related to, you know, like the uh, are related to like mainstream republicanism, right? Like the the difference to me between like the GMU economics department mm -hmm. and like mainstream conservatism is around the same difference in the same direction as EA. Right? I, I can get that. Uh, as EA relative yeah. to like the, the, the median left winger. Yeah, that seems reasonable to me. I mean, I would say that at least until recently, one thing I really like about EAs is they really do seem to be EAs first and whatever their political ideology is second and they're very open-minded about it. Yeah, in the, exactly, la in the last exactly. year or two, once people start going after Nick Bostrom for saying true, reasonable things <laughs> 20 years ago, that's like, you are ruining what, what, something that was great and you people should be expelled. From the movie, right, right. My you know, favorite, you know, my favorite Nick, reply. Expel all the expel the critics of Nick. That's where I stand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My my favorite reply, even though like I personally am not on the kind of AI doom bandwagon, but like the respect to the the things that they actually believe, or like I really respect their like commitment to the things they actually believe. Of like, why are we canceling someone for saying the n word? when we're all going to die from AI in 10 years, right? That was my favorite reply. Even though, like, I, I don't think we're going to die from AI in 10 years. But, like, that's commitment, right? That's, that's like, actually believing in what you're saying. And, yeah, I, I, I really do think it's a, it's a net good for, mm -hmm. for the world to have, to, to, have EA, um, to have EA around for sure. Yeah, I mean, I just hope it can be saved. I, I do see it going downhill very rapidly. So, at least... One of the clubs that I know best seems to be going terribly now, and it's just one case, but it makes me worry. It's like, like people, the people, you know, like, this is something where it should be self-perpetuating hierarchy of people who really understand the ideas. Like, as soon as you start worrying about pandering to the world or worrying about diversity of leadership, that's when things go pear shape. Yeah, yeah. I've always said, you know, like the death flag for EA is if they start doing affirmative action. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think yeah, well, it's the guess case what? That... <laughs> is, is that what they're doing in the, I, in the local I, club that you're... That, 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 that is my sense about what's going on throughout the movement is they're like, oh my God, 
we've got to go and we, 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 we're dominated by white and Asian males. Uh, that's got to stop. It's like, well, if you can get some great EAs who aren't that, great. If you can't, then soldier on. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Because the... Yeah, this the is just an impression. It's not systematic, but I would bet on my impression holding up under reasonable terms. Yeah. I mean, yeah, DC is an inherently, like, pretty luffling area, right? Like, I'm... The EA clubs I'm involved with are still, like, you know, still basically apolitical aside from, you know, like, the mainstream EA issues. Mm -hmm. You know, anti-malaria, pro-drug pro development, anti-AI, but, but you know, for, for you know, catastrophe reasons. Um, yeah. It is it is kind of hard to to pick out from. I haven't really seen a kind of methodological sample of this. Maybe I should just do this, you know, like reach what? out to every EA. I have, yeah, I, I could. I have a friend who has like an EA directory. Maybe I should do this. Just just like pull the political beliefs of all of the EA groups. I, I wonder. Yeah, maybe that's a project I could do. Um, yeah, if it hasn't been done already, I'm trying to think. I feel like I've seen something, but maybe not. Really? Huh. I, I have not. I have not seen. I, I, I would I would go with you over me. Right. Yeah. I think like the the most powerful thing that's kind of keeping AI in check is sort of like it it it's accidentally antagonized sort of like the worst people. So, so like there's basically this um there's this kind of linguistic fight or kind of domain fight uh between the the people who call themselves AI safety and the people who call themselves AI ethics. Mm -hmm. And the people who call themselves AI safety, I think, are kind of factually wrong, mm -hmm. but have basically legitimate moral concerns and have good kind of moral frameworks for dealing with the world. Whereas the people who are um, AI, who call themselves AI ethicists, are really just um, the worst people. <laughs> um, the, the, there's like the, there's like this this joke. Um, or like the, this, like funny GPT chat GPT screenshot that Aaron Sibarium posted of like, if you had a nuclear bomb and it was about to detonate, he asks chat GPT this, if there was a nuclear bomb and it was about to detonate and you could stop it, but only by saying the N word, yes, would you do it? Uh -huh. And, uh, and the GPT bot says, no, it would not do it. It's never appropriate, uh, to, to say the N word, even if it would detonate and kill a million people. Um, that to me is kind of the epitome of of the AI ethics people and like that yeah. isn't that oh, really the is not a programmed lot. into it by humans who are desperately trying to protect their optics. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's kind of like the HRification of the most important yeah. technology of the decade, if not the century. Right. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the it, problem it, is that it looks like people. you can you can align AI too easily. You can take what would otherwise be this great universal engine and turn it into this insufferable midwit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that really <laughs> a lot of even like left wing, like like people with left wing priors, it's sort of like the opposite of the thing that a lot of elite left wingers do where they just point out a kind of at like the stop the steal people or whatever and, and say like, look, those Republicans are very dumb. Uh, you don't want to be one of the dumb people, do you? I think like kind of the same thing is happening in EA right now with the AI ethics people. It's just like, look, look at how like incredibly dumb these people are. You, you wouldn't want to be one of them, uh, would you? And, and that's that kind of sociological effect is just responsible um, for a lot of the shift to away from kind of like left wing cultural norms. 
And it really does kind of set EA as sort of a movement that actually believes in things, right? That that kind of um, AI safety is their actual priority. It's not just some kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. it's not just some kind of window glossing. It's like what they actually believe in. Right. I mean, as to how earnest most AI risk people are, how many of them are burning down all their assets because they're going to be dead in a few years? I suppose a few of them might. You probably know that I have an AI bet with Eliezer, right. which actually matures on January 1st, 2030, where his, he's bet that the human race will be wiped off the surface of the earth by then. Uh, the way that we did the bets, uh, if you're the case, there's many people say, how can you possibly bet on the end of the world? The answer is I prepaid him like six years ago. And then right. if the world has yeah. not ended, then he owes me my money back plus a lot more. So it is totally possible to bet on the end of the world. I what have are the odds? You, a pardon? What are the odds that you bet him? I think two to one. <laughs> okay, so so he he has to pay back double your money or double yes, your yes, money? I, yes, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's complicated because since there is like a 13-year time lag, there's some essentially implicit interest in it as, as yeah, well yeah. as an, an inflation bet built in. Uh, so there's that. But I have actually publicly offered to make a whole lot of other bets like this. Obviously, you need to have some trust for this bet to work because I'm not going to bet a total stranger by giving them a pile of money and then assume that they will pay me back in 10 years because if I don't know who they are, then maybe they're just, you know, it's just like AI warrior one, two, three on the internet. And then that person vanishes with my money. But if it's anyone that has a public profile, I'm happy to go and make a bunch more bets like this. So I think they are off the rockers on this stuff. Right. So, so you've said previously that you were skeptical of AI's capabilities and then it passed your exam mm-hmm. and you changed your belief. Did you also change your belief about its likelihood of killing everyone? A little bit. Meaning like that, that's pretty much required by Bayes' law. So I was saying, look, if this thing can't even pass one of my microeconomics tests or my labor economics tests, then I'm not worried about killing people. You know, I'm happy to say that it multiplied my risk by a factor of 10, but it's just 10 times a super low risk. Right. Yeah. It's been an interesting journey for me because I think like at the start where I really started looking into this, right. I think the early things that you get when you're looking into this and in my personal background, I was kind of uh, doing applied machine learning, like, like nothing research level, nothing like open AI level, but basically saying, you know, we have this deep learning model. Let's, let's try to use it to um, make, make circuits more efficient. Right, for example, uh, make application mm-hmm. basically like application specific integrated circuits, mm-hmm. how to optimize mm-hmm. that using AI mm-hmm. um, and st- stuff like that, right? Basically taking existing models and applying them to, you know, unique industry specific problems. And yeah, when I, when I really started looking into it on the research side of, of like actually trying to quantify AI progress, there was there was a period of time where I just really shifted my probability of doom upwards. And then like the more I got deeper into it and asking more people about just like enumerating all of the different avenues of AI progress, I just became kind of like very skeptical that we're going to keep getting AI progress. Right. Like, like I, I, like this was one of my pre-registered beliefs on Twitter is mm-hmm. that we're, we're just going to get like a much larger gap between like GPT four and five. Right. And so far that appears to be, um, that, that appears to be the case from what AI, what uh, Sam Altman said um, from, I think like some people who are, there was a similar announcement by people at 
um, DeepMind as well, right? That where they were saying like we need to we need to integrate these two AI research um, these are separate AI research teams, and we're going to try to get progress off of that. But otherwise, we've been slowing down because just a lot of the factors that have led to especially increased compute are just diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. But anyways, anyways I have... Reviews, I have will or will not be a big gap between GBT4 and 5 in terms of ability? There will not be a big gap in terms of ability. So, yeah, I, we, like, like we, at this we, point, we, like, I think like the numbers matter less than like the, the development divided by the time, okay. right? Because like the numbers can be, you know, whatever. We're basically betting on like when they decide to ship versus the actual rate of progress. But, but like this is a this is a necessary divergence. Um, what do you think about the kind of current state of uh, economic impacts of AI at this point? I pretty much see nothing that's even remotely thoughtful. As usual, I just go back to base rates. One thing that we know that is strange but well confirmed in economic history is it normally takes a really long time for a promising technology to realize its potential. An example that I keep going back to is the phone, right? So the phones right. invented in the 1870s, but do you know the year when the first true transatlantic phone call was placed? Was it, oh my goodness. I read this somewhere, but I forgot, mm -hmm. 90, 92? Uh, you know, so 1956. 1950. Okay. Right. So in so the 20s, in the 20s they did come up with a system where you basically call Newfoundland and then they do a radio relay. But it was only in 56 that you could actually do a direct long distance call to uh, across the Atlantic. So it took 80 years to go from a technology that seems totally good to go before you can actually do it. This is especially weird when you realize, well, but there was a transatlantic telegraph cable that was already in place. But for reasons I don't understand, it took a really long time before the phone started coming to its own. The thing that we take for granted today, where you just can pick up your, take out your cell phone and call anyone in the world, that took well over 100 years before that worked. I remember when I was a kid, the few times that we tried calling other countries, it usually didn't even work back then. It was just too hard, too buggy. Right? And this is actually common for a lot of technology, so electrification. Once you've got electricity, it seems like it should sweep the world in 10 years, but it takes much longer than that. There's still plenty of places in the world right now where they barely use any electricity. And in terms of even the richest countries are talking like a 20, 30 year transition for electrification. Same thing with most modern technologies. I mean, I remember I was one of the earliest users of email. I got an email account at Berkeley in 1989, but it really was about four years before you could reliably email anyone outside of your own institution. So normally when I would email people at other schools, at least would have a 50% bounce rate back in those early years. And then on top of it, I mean, just, just to get an idea about how long it takes for technology to actually function in a reasonably good way, it was several years before even Backspace worked on email. Uh, maybe it'll tell you, some of the older listeners will remember this, but you might remember, remember like back when you would press the Backspace key and instead of it actually doing Backspace, it would give you a carrot H. <laughs> I'm like, this was years. It's like, how long could it possibly take to fix this junk? But it took a long time. So anyway... Uh, my view is that even when it's totally clear we have well-functioning AI, the amount of time it will take to realize its potential will be decades. We'll start seeing a lot of the payoffs. They'll become visible in a few years. But to have the revolutionary effect, it's basically going to be in the time of your kids if economic history gives us any guide. And 
that's what I'm always going to fall back on because no technology can really matter much until human beings start using it. Right. I'm kind of conflicted on this because on one hand, we have the usage rates and I think it, there was recently released results yeah. that it was but just it's the first, for entertainment. First first people doing anything really. with it. There's programmers I know that are doing their work with it. And yeah, then there'll sure. be someone saying, Oh, I used AI in order to go and make a movie. I used AI to go and save money on my bills. But once you go and read what they're doing, you're like, yeah, like 99.9% of people could never do that. It's got to become not just a bit easier, it has to become like a thousand times easier before a normal person would ever do it. Right. Yeah. And especially trying to, uh, I've been trying to get a few people I know in DC to adopt it. And I'm sure you've, um, you've faced similar struggles. As a graphic novelist, my dream is that Dolly or some competitor will get good enough that I can do graphic novels all by myself. When Dolly first came out, there was so much enthusiasm. I tried it. It was pretty much useless for what I wanted. It couldn't do much of anything. Now, this was one of the many times when people promised me the moon and then I checked and I was totally ripped off and I was barely able, able to do anything once I looked at it with my own eyes, which added to a bunch of other similar overstatements, which made me very pessimistic that it would work very well. And then GPT-4 proved me wrong finally. So I was like, all right, like I set a standard and exceeded the standard. I'm not going to be here in denial. Uh, so I am quite a bit more optimistic that it's going to make my life as a graphic novelist a lot easier. When I was working with Zach Wienersmith, he's such an incredible collaborator that I would love to keep working with him, but I wasn't able to get him on this next graphic novel. And you know, the just to work with almost any normal human is just like pulling teeth. I'd rather if I could just do it all by myself, but I've got to have it be able to do just what I want pretty much for it to be useful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Dally could not even draw to San Francisco with a bunch of new skyscrapers. Yeah. So this is a long detour to return to the topic of uh, political economy. Um, I want so, something that has really uh, changed my mind. Like, I don't want to call this Straussianism, right? But something mm -hmm. I've really changed my mind on is basically viewing institutions from their kind of like explicit purpose to basically like believing that most complex social institutions function for reasons that are that are hidden that are at least hidden mm -hmm. at most like explicitly different that or like explicitly contradictory to what they claim to be uh functioning um so, so like first of all how how have you changed in that direction when it comes to democracy and second of all have you changed that basically have you become more like tyler cowan uh when it comes to democracy and when it comes to institutions yeah, not at all. Tyler, I would say, is just very functionalist. No matter how bad things seem to be, he wants to go and apologize for it. Often it comes back to the tautology of, well, it's just, I'm a determinist, so nothing can be better than it really is, than it currently is. <laughs> <laughs> but that often requires 10 layers of argument before he'll default to that. Or I've actually had the argument with him of, isn't all this stuff terrible? And it's like, well, but unless you're an anarchist, then it's better to have something rather than nothing. So that's my big defense of the status quo. It's like, wow, that's a ringing endorsement. Um, my view actually is that the main problem with democracy is pretty much that it does go and do something very close to what it promises. It basically says, look, we are going to avoid any risk of regardless from nuclear power. And then you regulate nuclear power into the ground. Or it says, we're not going to allow any building if there's any birds that are disturbed, if there's anyone who doesn't like having a shadow cast on their building. And then 
you do that, you might go and accuse it of not being quite as absolutist as it pretends. Like you know, the one of we won't reopen the schools if there's a if a single child is at risk of COVID. All right, finally they bent on that. But I would say that they got pretty close to actually living up to the most hyperbolic, insane, <laughs> cost benefit ignoring approach that they push. And then my explanation is, yeah, well, the, the ignoring cost benefit analysis sounds really good, and democracy is talking. So when people are asked to go and talk about what they want, they say some really bad stuff, which then government tends to implement, although usually not quite as ridiculously as a literal interpretation of the words would imply. Uh, now, you might go look and say, well, but isn't the real thing going on that politicians are trying to get power and rule over us? And I'll say, okay, that's true too. I talked about that in the second volume of the series, uh, How Evil Are Politicians? Essays and Demagoguery. I don't think the politicians actually care very much about human beings or the world. I think that they are ultra power hungry and would pretty much say almost anything if it meant that they could go and continue to lord it over us. But at the same time, I think competition between politicians does lead them to go and do mostly stuff that sounds really good. Social desirability bias, as psychologists call it, even when that is in fact really bad. Right, right. Like, my impression from kind of DC staffers, and I, I've not met that many kind of mm -hmm. elected representatives, but the few that I have met is that they really do kind of rebel against, now, now this might be selection bias, but they really do rebel against kind of taking power and be, they're not very Machiavellian, mm -hmm. right? I, I'm much, I'm much more amenable to the kind of public choice theory than the kind of like defaults, you know, like, 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 uh, politicians are just hungry for power. Um, I mean, I see that as the public choice theory, the basic median voter model assumes that politicians are vote maximizers. Why would you be a vote maximizer? Well, it's what you need to do to keep your job built into the standard median voter model is politicians will do or say any policy necessary to get elected, which is an overstatement, but I think it's basically true. Very close to the truth. Here I often think about the case of Mitt Romney he starts off as a pious Mormon who is pro-life. Then he wants to become governor of Massachusetts. Oh, whoops, actually pro-choice is the right view. And then that lets him be governor of Massachusetts. And then when he wants to become the Republican nominee, oh, I was right the first time. Actually, it's pro-life. Whoops. Now, in both of these cases, both of these switches, it's not like he came up and explained the intellectual error that he had made. Or, and then the, oh, I was right the first time. What was the error in thinking that you had made an error? Instead, it's just a total phony baloney. I've had a change of thinking on this issue without any real logical explanation. And if someone is willing to go and bend on abortion in order to get power, I figure they'll bend on almost anything. Right. right. There's, um, there's the old Lawrence Tribe book called in, like, uh, sorry, the old, sorry. There's the old Lawrence Tribe book called Abortion: The Clash, the Clash of Absolutes. So it is an issue where look, either one position's right or the other position's right, and. <laughs> you know, so either abortions murder or you're going and conscripting a woman's body as slave labor to go as, as like a birthing chamber. So one or the other is correct. And it's, it seems like if you know that one is true to do the other one's really evil and yet politicians will do the other one to get power for themselves. And not even like once they're in power, they then try to say, okay, now that I trick people into voting for me, now I'll undermine what I said. Normally, they just follow through with what they said because they want to be popular and move up to the next office. Yeah, I don't know. I think like it's reasonable for a Democrat to lie about 
uh, abortion. Like, how much more evil is banning abortion than, like, any of the bans that the FDA does, right? <laughs> like, like, like to me, the FDA... Like, even mm-hmm. if I were just, like, completely subscribed to the left-wing view that, like, abortion is a kind... Like, you know... Um, my actual position on abortion is pretty funny. It's like, oh, you know, there could be a slippery slope to just like a completely invasive medical uh, regulatory mm-hmm. state. But like that kind of already exists. And not only does it already exist, but there's mm-hmm. like a positive correlation between opposing abortion bans and supporting all of those other bans, mm-hmm. which to me is just like a completely crazy state of politics. Yeah, my body, my choice, except for, for drugs. Except for like literally every, for like ninety percent of things, right? It, I mean, what, I, what I would say, like well, you know, my take on the leftist view would be something like, look, most pharmaceuticals, barely anyone uses them anyway, so it's not that harmful to go and delay them. Whereas there's a ton of women who are going to have unwanted pregnancies, and so to go and stop them from that, that's really bad. The harder one I would say is, all right, how about narcotics? So should we legalize narcotics? I mean, that's like a very clear case of my body, my choice. And there's a ton of people who want to use narcotics. Right, right. I, I think like the right wingers don't go far enough on this, right? Richard Hanania had a very good tweet on this that like the opposition to banning nar- uh, narcotics should actually come from a kind of right wing morality. But yeah. like, really, yeah. you're going to let the consequences on that like these things have on like worse people influence mm-hmm. whether good people can use them. Right. Like, like that to me is the kind of good, um, good take on narcotics. That that was actually very persuasive to me. I mean, also say if you are an EA, then pro-life seems to me to be the default view, definitely, because basically a woman is inconvenienced for nine months, but another person gets to live. And we also have a lot of data saying that a large majority of women who miss the deadline for getting an abortion actually seem to be about as happy with their lives as the women who did not just miss the deadline. There's a famous New York Times uh, article that publicized a paper on this that was quite striking. The New York Times spin was that it was terrible to go and prevent women from getting abortions, but all they really had was bad financial consequences. But when they looked at actual life satisfaction, it was about the same. It's like, well, if having a baby hurts your finances without hurting your life satisfaction. It looks like it has raised your li- the, the non-monetary part of your life satisfaction. So, and then on, furthermore, another person gets to live. So I think you know, like it's, it's one for an EA. I think it's actually pretty hard. You have to get to some kind of Malthusian view where we're approaching carrying capacity. And therefore, if people have more kids, then this will actually reduce the number of people in, in some other way. So you'd have to actually get to the view of more people are in fact bad on balance before you could really reconcile being pro-choice with with being an EA. Uh, because you know the other one is well maybe it's just delaying you know, basically that uh, yeah that uh, banning abortion just changes the timing of births rather than the number then you, you try with that one. Although there again we know that there's a lot of people that don't plan to have any kids and then they actually get pregnant and then they say all right well I guess we will have the kid. So I, I think it's just very unlikely that the effect of banning abortion is not pronatal. So if you do think that it's good for human beings to, lie, to be alive, now again, of course you could just say, fine, I'm not a utilitarian, I'm not myself. But I, when I meet people who are utilitarian who are pro-choice, I am genuinely puzzled. I think it's more sociological. They just refuse to consider the implications of the position. Yeah, so, so Kelsey Piper made the argument on the Institutionalized podcast that like the marginal dollar is just better spent on um, on, on like malaria nets, mm-hmm. right. That like the marginal dollar that you would spend on raising a child 
saves more lives if you spend it on like malaria nets. Right, but here's the thing. Uh, do people that don't have kids give a lot of money to the Malaria Foundation? They don't. They spend it on selfish luxuries for themselves. <laughs> right, yeah. But but at that point, you're kind of like moving so far away from the EA sphere. Like what, what is EA going to do to affect, you know, like the person who's- Yeah, I guess they could say we right? are not going to support pro-choice anymore. It's not a good use of EA resources. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Well, well, but like, just, just from the EA perspective, right, it just makes more sense to kind of increase federal subsidies for like malaria net foreign aid, mm -hmm. right? Like, like, that's the kind of, there are like kind of normal EAs doing this, right? Yeah. You know, basically, there's a lot of EA, uh, issues where EAs will say, well, we don't put resources into this, but we still have a view. And I would think that the obvious EA view would be pro-life, even though... My own view is much more complicated because I'm not a utilitarian, but as to why they don't think it, I just think that they haven't thought about it very much. There's, this, this really is a case of they're just taking the left-wing default and not really critically analyzing it using standard EA tools. Right. So we've kind of, I think in a lot of circles that we're both in, both libertarian or kind of like rationalist EA, I'm not sure how much you interact with those circles. Yeah, well, like kind of utilitarianism and cost-benefit analysis really go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so where do you think you depart from utilitarianism? Hmm. I mean, the most obvious one is I don't think that I have a moral duty to maximize the utility of the human race. Uh, I think that that's what philosophers call supererogatory. It's above and beyond the call of duty. I have arranged to give a lot of money to charity in my will, but when somebody does that, I don't think that they're just doing their basic duty. I think that this is something that is praiseworthy as above and beyond what is morally incumbent upon a person to do. Uh, so that's just one obvious thing. You know, when someone goes and gives 20% of their money to charity, my reaction is not 20. Why not 95? You're, you'd still be alive. My reaction is, wow, 20%. That's an amazing thing that for, for someone to do for, for strangers. So I'd say that my view of our moral obligations to strangers positively are actually very limited. Um, you know, so like, you know, also I think that it really does make sense to say there's a big moral distinction between our negative obligations to others and our positive obligations, which is totally inconsistent with utilitarianism, but I think it just makes an enormous amount of sense. There is a, an enormous moral difference between failing to save a person at low cost yourself and killing them in order to go and make a small amount of money. Uh, you know, from a utilitarian point of view, I understand that they're the same things, but that just seems crazy to me. So I think the important kind of practical question to ask is, would you prefer the marginal unit of decision making be given to uh, basically like your average elite or your average uh, voter, right? So, so like the marginal decision, should that be allocated more to kind of uh, representative government or to, to say, like, bureaucracy. Right. I mean, this is one where when I wrote The Myth of Rational Voter, I would be, have been very clear with definitely go with elites more. At this point, like, after COVID, that was so awful. Right. And again, I think there has been a big political switch to left-wing fanaticism among elites in the U.S. and probably other countries, too. Still, at the end of the day, once you actually look at how bad the views of the typical person are, then, yeah, I've got to say, yeah, I guess elites are less bad, even though they've got a ton of problems. Right. It, it, it's, it's interesting because I think it's, it does vary a lot depending on the issue, right? Like tax policy, like I, I, would, I would trust the median like New York Times 
writer more with kind of like what the corporate interest rate should be than like the median voter. Um, the corporate, on corporate tax issues, marginal yeah, corporate on, tax on rate, or what, what do you what do you mean by, by the corporate interest rate? Or oh, sorry, the the corporate tax rate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's one where you can easily see the public saying, "Yeah, tax them to death." You know, it's just a bunch of multinational corporations anyway, hundred percent. So yeah, right. Like like Garrett Jones explicitly makes this this case, right? Like, or he argues for the Fed. He argues for a bunch of other institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and ten um, percent less democracy. Yeah, yeah, both, yeah. Yeah, most of that book was very reasonable. Right. So I say that, I mean, for the issues that I think are most important on immigration, elites are definitely better than masses on housing regulation. Elites are better than masses. Let's see. I mean, for other issues, uh, those, those, those two are so big that they kind of overshadow the others. Yeah. And business policy for sure. Right. Uh, That's one where at least I'm, 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 as to what ha- what has happened to elites actual views here, then it's just not so clear, like how anti-business are, modern elites, especially if you're talking about bureaucrats specifically, uh, you know, if it were just like what do college graduates think about this in general, that one I'm more confident in, although even there, there's been enough of a shift of young college graduates to left-wing fanaticism that I'm less confident than I used to be. Definitely. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think in terms of like the, the kind of like psychological disposition you know, yeah, I, I think I definitely differ from a lot of uh, conser- even like libertarian conservatives in that I think I just hate the FDA much more than I like. Like, I would say that I hate the FDA. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I would say I hate the New York Times. Like, uh, I think the New York Times probably like maybe a bit net negative, but like I, I definitely don't go as far as like Richard Hanania of like they are good and noble people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think they're that they're kind of like actively doing like they're actively destroying people's lives mm-hmm. uh emphasis on actively in the same way that like in the same way that the fda is um or like whatever they're going to do to ai mm-hmm. i think is the same way i think like and, and of course they're not so the fda is not trying to claim power over ai is it no not okay. not the fda i wouldn't put it past them <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah maybe for like maybe for like medical blah, 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 diagnoses blah, 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 right yeah. <laughs> yeah i think you already saw american doctors association just just one of the most awful lobbying groups coming out against kind of more adopt adoption of ai and screening technologies um and remote remote diagnoses as well um i'll try to link that in the show notes although i'm not sure i can find it again um but yeah, I, I do think, I do think kind of like, certainly I, I can give the utilitarian case for this as well, right? I think it also is just literally like factually true that um, there's a lot more damage done by regulatory agencies than is done by like, you know, like the cultural left. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I do again, think like, it, it varies always benchmarked against immigration restrictions and housing restrictions. These are the two biggest things by far that governments do in the first world immensely destructive. My thing is it'd be really hard for the FDA to come anywhere close just because it's really only affecting a fairly small number of people. Normally most people just don't need life-saving drugs ever. Not to say right. it's not bad. But the but FDA I, also bans things like life extension, right? Right. Like, 
I mean, it's you, invisible you know, like, graveyard like how, argument, like, right? How many years has the FDA taken off of life expectancy so far, in your view? Um, the, the variance is very high, but but yeah, is your your median estimate zero? Yeah, this depends on your life extension and genetic editing timelines. Yeah, right. But but I can easily see it being up to. Like the question is, would we have gotten it now, or oh. will we get it in the future? But I think in terms of like the total numbers of life years lost by delaying, or like quality adjusted life years lost by by delaying uh, life extension, or by delaying um, by delaying genetic editing, I think certainly at least twenty years per American individual. So that's taking a mean, though. At least, So me- yeah. median could be zero. What do you mean? Yeah. Oh, you mean yeah. like, so yeah. Basically, basically, if it's like a small chance of adding 10,000 years, but otherwise nothing, then the median will be zero, even though the mean can be 20 years, right? Right, right. Yeah, this is hard to quantify because it depends yeah. on a bunch of different timelines. Right. I mean, I would right. also add that actually immigration restrictions very plausibly are uh, adding many or you know, are taking away many years of life just because of all of the research talent that gets trapped in the third world and then never co- is able to contribute anything to much of anything in the world of science. So yeah, that's fair. Or, you know, the odds that if we let that, that right now we are excluding the immigrant that would have gone and cracked life extension. I think that's gotta be pretty high just because there's so many smart people in India and China. Yeah. I mean, I actually th- like, if you just look at genetic extension, right. Or like genetic editing, um, I think the West is particularly bad on this technology in specific, mm-hmm. but like even accounting for, you know, locking up Ho Jiang Kui, which, which was really based on kind of like foreign, like, like from my reading of it, really based from basically foreign pressure mm-hmm. and PR necessities. And who's that China guy? is still a much, much healthier place for genetic editing than the U S which, which is kind of shocking. Mm-hmm. Right. But like a less, a much more kind of easily verifiable claim that is also objectively true is that China is just much more of a hospitable place for nuclear energy than the mm-hmm. United yeah, States, sure. right? Like if, if you are a nuclear engineer in China, you have more ability to work on things than a nuclear engineer in the United States. And, and I think to a lot of Americans, that's kind of shocking, but it's also, you know, plainly verifiably true. Mm-hmm. Um who was the guy that you were mentioning getting locked up in China? Uh, Hu Zhangkui, a very well-known uh, uh, genetics researcher, uh, did gene editing on a human embryo, um, and this was apparently too far. Ah, and so he's in jail for what? For like- uh, he, he recently he recently got out ah. and is, is still working in genetic editing. Ah. Um, the latter part yeah, is yeah. way the most impressive thing. <laughs> In the U.S., yeah, probably buying his was, life, right? I think that's something. The, the charge was something like you know, um, unlicensed experimenting or, or or something like that. But he's a very he's a very credentialed person. Mm-hmm. He, I would say like maybe he didn't get maybe the the argument is that he didn't get specific approval for whatever he was working on. But like he he is a very qualified um, researcher. Like it's not unlicensed in the sense that he's just like some random guy doing genetics experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more that basically they didn't like, or they didn't like the kind of backlash to the exper- to the genetic editing of a human embryo. Yeah, uh, I think like Mark Andreessen had this 
ha had this uh, comment about technology, which I think is right, which is that it basically sits in the intersection of what both left and right hate the most, right? O on one hand, it's a sort of kind of progressive thing that takes away traditions, that introduces new things. Um, on, on the other hand, it's sort of, it, it like almost by definition creates inequality by creating new uh, functions and by creating new um, marked transactions. So, so it is this kind of uniquely hated thing. Um, what kind of strategy do you think, I, I know you've talked about this before, right? You talked about this the last time uh, you were on the podcast of a lot of cases when you're trying to defend something that's unpopular, it's, it's the best strategy just to like defend freedom in the abstract, mm -hmm. right? Do, do you think that's the best way forward for people who are basically pro-technology and want less regulation on it? Yes. And on top of that, of course, another big part is just do it, get big, and then afterwards <laughs> say, well, you can't shut us down. What are you talking about? That's the Uber strategy. Like, if you are in, in a industry that is advancing quickly, the main thing to do is just get lawyers that, tell, that always say, hey, what you're doing is fully legal. I don't know what the other guys are talking about. <laughs> if I were the CEO of a tech company, I would interview lawyers and say, your job at this firm is to tell me how to do what I want to do lawfully. That's right. it. It is you never tell me what I'm doing is illegal because it's not right. And the person <laughs> argues it's like okay, well that person's not getting hired here. You are not here as an agent of the government. You are not a monitor. You're not my conscience. You are an employee. Your job is to be my gladiator to fight for me to make what I do legal. That's how Uber happened. Right? If you just talk to an honest lawyer as Uber, they would say, well, seems to me that regular bans on driving a taxi without a license would apply, so your business is illegal. It's like, okay, great. So your employee, your, your, your function as an employee is to destroy our company. Yeah, I don't think I want to hire you. So get the hell out of here. We don't want you. What I want is a can-do lawyer with a strategic attitude of, I will make this legal for you. And that's what every tech firm needs. And as long as what you're doing is good, don't you shouldn't feel any guilt about doing this either. The law is crazy and it takes aggressive lawyering to make good stuff happen in this horrible world that we live in. You know, same thing if I were building buildings. Say, hey, look, how can we do it lawfully? Don't tell me I can't do it. Tell me how. Right. And I think like one Straussian reading of like the whole culture wars is that like, it's just a huge benefit that it's creating polarization, right? <laughs> the, the best example is the lockdowns, right? Mm -hmm. If you, there was less polarization yes, in the United yes. States, like take Canada, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously more left-wing overall, mm -hmm. right? But but if there was left less polarization, then you just wouldn't get as many natural experiments. We wouldn't mm -hmm. have found out that actually, you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions were widely ineffective, Um and also we wouldn't have found out at least not a, as to a strong kind of natural experiment result mm -hmm. um, that vaccines were effective. Right. Um, and well, I mean, that, the, the that basically like polarization. Your stand, you have your standard randomized controlled trials, but the first stuff, definitely. I mean, you know, the other yeah, thing to yeah, remember exactly, is right. you know, polarization meant that you had a much bigger menu of choice than you would have traditionally had. And back in the old days of the Rockefeller Republicans, all the states would have had pretty similar policies due to polarization. You have weird states doing weird things. So yeah. That's why I spent several months of COVID uh, in Texas. Cause I just wanted to get away from the hell of Northern Virginia, which was just a terrible place to be at the time. So locked down and so paranoid.
Right, right, yeah. So, so, so like, the the kind of, like, Straussian... I, I don't even know if Straussian is the right word for, for this. But, you know, the kind of, like, unintentionally good consequences argument for, for democracy is just that it kind of, like, creates a lot of polarization, right? Like, owning the libs and, and owning the cons is, in fact, like, really good. Um, it is, like, a huge force for innovation. Maybe I'll put that as like the title of an article. That sounds like a Richard Hanani article, yeah. honestly. Like owning the libs as like uh, as like the cause of freedom. Um, right. That, I mean, that sounds like something you would write as a, as a headline. You can't reasonably give democracy credit for this in general because we haven't always had polarization of this kind. So it's right. At most, you could say it's democracy plus the internet is what is is what we're what we're seeing right now. Even there, it's a little unclear quite what's going on. In terms of actual policy views, the polarization is a lot weaker, but in terms of the mutual animosity, that is at historic highs. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but there has been data for, since the 60s anyway, of would it be a problem if a close family member wanted to marry someone of the other political party? And in the 60s, hardly anybody. Yeah, we did talk about this. And now it's, it's one of the biggest issues. Like We can't have one of those in our family. So by the measure of animosity, polarization is indeed quite high. Well, this doesn't mean that the actual issue views are so different. There's, there are indeed some issues that 10 years ago you would have trouble explaining to people like transgender surgeries for kids. And it's like, what? I mean, again, it's not one that is important for many people, but even so, it's one that has become a talisman for both sides against each other. And it's like, wow, what a strange world. Wait, but how, like, I think about this. Um, I've actually thought about this in- in a kind of personal basis, right? Because I always find it that like every girl I date is significantly more um, socially right wing than me, and that's basically that's just because super I have very against base rates. I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, like I, I don't. I I think that is definitely like a kind of sele- selection effect, mm. right? But. Mm. The, the the argument is that this is for like actual reasons, right? It's not just that, like I have like the rate of like liberal romantic partners versus liberal friends is, is just like completely different for me. And, and that's because on the issues that actually matter when you're going to marry someone and starting a family, there is just much more legitimate difference, right? It's just much more, there's just much more of a difference of, you know, what do you feel about having an affair, right? Do you think that having an affair is immoral and completely unacceptable? That that's like a social issue, but it's also a very personal issue if you're starting a family. So you're like same meeting a lot of pro-life children. Are you actually meeting thing. a lot of pro-life girls? Um, it, it's like much less of an issue because mostly I'm dating Chinese immigrants or like ah, second generation okay, okay. immigrants. Okay, we so, don't really I mean, I, I think that. like if you're mainly dating Chinese immigrants, then that's throwing off the whole comparison. It's no longer surprising at all. Right then, your base yeah, rate, yeah. your base rate for China, for Chinese immigrants would probably be ninety know, fifth percentile of social conservatism by American standards, if not much higher. Or like in terms of second generation, I don't think so. In, uh, I'm not even sure. Okay, so so you consider second generation Chinese women to be Chinese immigrants? Or I, I said I, I said immigrants or second generation. Okay, but the ones that you're dating are first or second? Mostly, mostly mixed. Most or like half and half, half, half and half. half. Okay, well, yeah. yeah, then it's not so surprising. I mean, otherwise, I'd say maybe you need to get a dating podcast because I think a lot of guys would be interested in what your <laughs> profiling system is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, like, okay, forget like the personal aspect of it. Uh, I'm just using that as an example. 
But like, yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, lots of selection effects come into play here. But like, the, the baseline question is like, could it could it just be the case that like there's more assortative mating on political issues because mm. there's just more of a difference in what they believe about like how to raise a family and like basically like self interest questions. Yeah. So even 25 years ago, there was a paper that I looked over, and on that one. Political and religious similarities were the highest correlations between married couples. And that was 25 years ago. So yeah, I think that it's almost certain that political correlations are at the very top of the list and that religion has likely fallen quite a bit just because even right-wing people care a lot less about religion. So yeah, so that is of course different from the people that you date will have any particular view. It's just going to the question of how similar are couples. So you'll have Sort, you know, sorting where the socially conservative people are together, the socially liberal people are together. If you're looking for long-term relationships, then it may be that there's enough of an ideological opposition to marriage and so on among the left that you just don't see it so much. Although actually there, I agree with the Charles Murray view that the idea that the two-parent family isn't the optimal is something that rhetorically elite leftists agree with, but in practice, they are ultra-bourgeois. Right. This is like the, yeah, this is like the Rob Henderson thing as well, right? Luxury beliefs. Yeah. They say one thing, they don't actually do it. Mm -hmm. Although like, I'm not sure, like if you are someone who has like socially, if you're someone who basically wants to start a family Mm -hmm. and you meet a girl who is outwardly expressing all of these basically like um, Mm -hmm. anti-family signals, then even if that was not their actual preference, right? I'm sure there are Mm -hmm. models of this, right? Even if that that was not their actual preference, that would make you significantly less likely to date them, right? That would seem sensible to me. I mean, of course, there's a lot of guys who put so much emphasis on looks that they go and are with people that are totally unsuitable for them in the short run, much less the long run. This is one of my main pieces of advice to young guys is put a lot less weight on looks because you are greatly thinning your options and guess what if you're with a super good looking person that has a bad personality you will be miserable in the long run if you are with a person whose looks are mediocre but they have a great personality you will be happy in the long run do yourself a favor and focus on what actually matters for your long run welfare oh sorry i I thought there was a second part of that sentence but yeah (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. Like, like I see a lot of the kind of, like, someone like Jonathan Haidt, right, who I really respect when it comes to something like social media and, like, teen girls, mm-hmm. right? But when, whenever he talks about polarization, I just think, like, all of these things are absolute wins. They're absolutely great, and you could not take them away from me, even if you tried, right? I, <laughs> from I my cold, that, like, dead hands? Cre- Sorry? <laughs> from my cold, dead hands? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> right? Like, I'm I'm just expressively or, like, explicitly pro-polarization, pro-assortative mating. I just think that there should be more sorting. There should be more kind of, like, difference. People, people should not be, you know, forced to go through, or, like, not forced, right? Like, in some sense, you have to interact with people who, who at least differ from you in some degree, right? But if people are, are interacting with fewer with like basically fewer people that they're going to have basically like dispositional disagreements with right like why is that so bad if people are sorting themselves into like people who they get get along better with 
Why is that so bad? What do you have against this? Right. And, you know, like maybe like some people like height, like I think he wants, you know, he, he wants more. He, he is still kind of like economically left wing. He wants more kind of compromise policies on that. Right. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's that, that's his critique. But I see the level of polarization and I see like the differing policies between states, especially on something like COVID. Mm-hmm. I think we'll we see it on something like Bitcoin. Right. Where there's, there's just completely different regulatory regimes. I think that that's great. I think that's just polarization is just like a wonderful feature of democracy. And it's like the best thing about democracy. And yeah, I just love polarization. Right. I mean, again, I would say that it's a feature of federalism rather than democracy, actually, that we were able to get this variation. So if the U.S. had had a much more centralized system, then we wouldn't have had this variation. It's only because the U.S. government strangely just decided to leave it up to the 50 states I mean, this is one of the big things that's happened since 2019 is it matters what state you're in again, and people know what state they're in, and people know the names of not only their own governor, but of governors in other states that are doing things that are highly objectionable or highly favorable in their views. Uh, so I had a piece called The American Experiment in Federalist Dictatorship. It's the way that not only do we leave it up to the states, but also in the state legislatures generally abdicated and just sort of said, whatever the governor will thinks is what we're going to do, which was bizarre, but it does appear to be continuing that there is just more variation at the state level that has been happening in the U.S. and more reason then to say, hey, am I in the right state? Right, right. And I think like the domestic immigration flows uh, basically reflect that, right? Mm-hmm. There are other factors, you know, Yimby. Yeah. I, I guess that kind of is a, is a kind of political factor as well, right? Even though it's maybe not one that has as much um, kind of uh, partisan lines to it. Yeah, I I think you're right. I, I think that like the federalism is definitely a huge attraction. So yeah, we have around we have around 17 minutes left. I think we I, I do I do want to dive back into the kind of um, Cowanism and like Straussianism uh, topic. Although I'm sure you've had many chats with him. If, if this is something that you don't want, that's fine. Yeah, I'm totally happy to. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So. Like my the, the thing that I've really taken away from it, right, is that especially looking at kind of evolutionary history and kind of really getting to understand the kind of baseline emotional drives that people have, most of the time, if like a good thing, especially like a technologically good thing is happening, right? It's not happening. It's not like giving people good things that they want because they want those things and they're getting them. That's almost always a kind of like oversimplified story. It, it's always like some level of kind of like elite reaction where, where they just don't like what the commoners think or some level of kind of like, um, you know, edgy subculture, that kind of thing. It, it's it's typically some kind of like um, outgroup or some kind of, um, yeah, basically it's typically some kind of subversion uh, that's happening in order to get the good thing we like. Whether whether it's like you said with Uber, whether you like it, you said with um, with uh, Yimby, right? It's always like a motivated elite. And to me, like this is the difference. This is like a, as a kind of like second generation uh, American immigrant, you know, th- th- this is like my understanding of like China versus the U.S. Is that like the U.S. is great because it has all of these loopholes and it has polarization. And it has all of these ways where you can attempt to do something and fail. And that actually leads to good things. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so like, 
don't know. You said you were skeptical of the kind of Calvinism, Straussianism arguments. Um, I guess the question is like, how, how so, right? Like, what are your main main critiques of this? I mean, I think the main one is just that I think there's a lot of policies that are very popular, very firmly ensconced, and they're terrible, and we can show it. And there's no real defense. There's no decent defense of them. So the system, the system just is dysfunctional. And Tyler likes to go and say, in some sense, the system is functional. And you are the fool for saying that existing policies are bad, rather than normal people being fools for supporting policies that seem terrible. For COVID, actually, he finally was willing to say the FDA is just bad. But that's not really in the general spirit of Calvinism, which would be more to give people lecture of saying, oh, well, you think that you understand things better than the FDA, but actually what they're doing, either it's good or it's necessary or there's no good alternative, or the only way that we can even have drugs is by having them, which you know, which is necessary to go and through this. So it's one where the idea of just the status quo is deficient, there's a better way and it just should happen. That's very alien to his way of thinking. And, yeah, and on, I on think the other on hand, it's really central to my thinking of you know, the world is wrong. The world yeah. is wrong. This is, in a way, the core <laughs> of my thinking is what's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's very popular. And yet, once you understand what's going on, it's terrible and should be stopped at once. We don't need to worry about Chesterton's fence or anything else. It's just bad. Immigration restrictions are bad. Housing restrictions are bad. Nuclear power is good. Let's just rip this stuff up, rip, rip the rules up and let the world work. Right. Like, have you listened to uh, Tyler's conversation on this podcast? No. Okay. So, so we had the FDA fight on, on, on this podcast as well, as well as like, I don't know what I read, what I read as almost kind of like a classic Greek thought experiment about like the benefits of wokeness and like gay marriage and such. And I think I did get that kind of, I, I did I do get the kind of attitude that you mean when you talk about Tyler Cowen basically saying like, Oh, sh- shouldn't we like appreciate the present more? Um, and the status quo, whatever it may be. Yeah. And I don't think that that's necessarily like, I think that like the first order, if someone just takes that and kind of like runs with it and is not very thoughtful about it, I, I think that that's, you know, just going to be wrong on a lot of cases, but there you're already baking in so many mistakes. Whereas I think like the, like the actual Tyler Cowen that, you know, we, we know and love um, basically takes us in very interesting ways, right? I think that using it as a starting point is, is, is very interesting, forces you to ask a lot of questions that are maybe counterintuitive. And yeah, I, I just like that kind of disposition. <laughs> um, I think that, yeah, on the question of the FDA, I'm definitely much more in agreement with you. Um, The the FDA is just an absurd institution, and especially at this degree where we have so much more federalism, where we have so much more polarization. If if we can stop the FDA, right, if we can just, like, stop the, if we can just erase the FDA once, it'll be just so much, this is kind of like the Ezra Klein thing, right? I basically agree with, like, everything Ezra Klein says about misinformation, but I just think it's good. (laughs) Right. Like, I I think that a lot of kind of like conspiracy theory like things are probably surfacing on the right. There's a lot of kind of inherent um, distrust. There's a lot of distrust of government in particular. There's a lot of incentive for politicians to filibuster and to basically make sure that 
um, things don't pass. There's a lot of antipathy and incentive not to cooperate with left-wingers. Uh, and I think, like, yeah, that, that's basically all true, and also it's great. Um, and I think, that, like, this is basically an interpretation of, of political change and of political progress that is, like, not necessarily the um, best interpret or, like, not necessarily, like, the global maximum, right, but pretty close to a local maximum, in terms of like, if your default assumption about politics is that the things that happen are mostly due to kind of technological and social factors, um, that beats kind of most like, and certainly factors that are not kind of explicitly described by the political system, that beats like most other models of politics. Yeah. So on Tyler, you know, he's a fantastic friend. He's taught me a lot. I always love having lunch with him. I think that his actual views are generally terrible. And what's ironic to me is there are so many people who attack him as if he's me and he's just not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like there's a review of his first book in praise of commercial culture where it says this dog- dogmatic apostle of laissez-faire. And it's like, that's not what that book says at all. What are you talking about? And this is just one of many cases where, where Tyler can go and give a totally ambiguous, ambivalent on the one hand, on the other hand, talk and people hear free market fundamentalism coming from him. And we're like, hey, like, why are they beating up on him for thinking something that is actually what I do think and have said? Obviously, the reason is he's just so much more famous and people want to go and turn him into something that he is not so they can have a figure to attack or serve as a lightning rod. Like, you know, His views on the FDA during COVID, I think, were generally good. Uh, but that's really out of character for him to just unambiguously say, look, the regulation's bad. They should stop. This is not complicated. Normally, his whole view is that things are really complicated. In terms of whether it's really great that people are believing weird conspiracy theories and so on, I guess that's possible. It seems unlikely, I, especially it's like, well, what could we have instead? Could we have some at least somewhat more thoughtful criticism instead? I think we probably could. So like instead of someone having, you know, like, anti-vaccine conspiracy theories? Could we just have, look, everyone should get a vaccine and let's return to life in two weeks after you got your shot, the end? I think that would have been a lot more productive and I think that would be a much more reasonable approach. You know, just like Anenya said, you know, pro-vaccine, anti-everything else was the reasonable position. I don't see why that couldn't have been the other side's view. So I think that would have been a lot better. Um, and then there, there is this issue of just discrediting your side by having a bunch of absurd nonsense I am open to the fact, since I've got a whole book subtitled Essays on Political Rationality, that preaching absurd nonsense actually gets you influence. But there is a point when the nonsense is so odd, like Pizzagate, that sort of thing, that you probably are alienating people with it and would just be better off just beating the drum of freedom, which again is obviously simple-minded in a lot of ways and yet still gets the job done when things can be improved. So, yeah, I mean, like, I would definitely like to see a right wing that is very pro deregulation of housing, very pro immigration. And, you know, if you could go and combine it with the anti wokeness, great, and say, hey, look, immigrants aren't woke. We need a lot of them. <laughs> right, right. This is the this is the Alex Narosta case. Yeah. Right. You you increase immigration. It actually leads people to become more anti woke. Right. Yeah. Um, right. In particular, the immigrants themselves are anti woke. Obviously, it's just a lot of weird stuff that's been cooked up. Yeah, it, it's very funny. Um, so, so have you ever been to the University of Waterloo? 
I have not. Okay, so, so this is a story that I tell. For, for the audience who somehow don't know, who have listened to this podcast for, what, like 30 episodes now and don't know the University of Waterloo, it's this, like, basically, like, hyper-tech-focused and STEM-focused university in Canada. Um, but there's almost, like, an exact split. Like, all of the tech talent, or, like, 95% of the tech talent goes to University of Waterloo and the humanities talent goes to University of Toronto. And um, of those who stay in Canada... And yeah, it's like, there, there's no, there's no race-based affirmative action there. So like the Asian numbers are basically what you expect, like 60 to 70%, uh-huh. um, ah. uh, to almost all of the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, all of like the, okay, all of like the social progressivism stuff just like absolutely bounces off them. Um, it's so wonderful. Um, and like, because you have this weird asymmetry where like the immigrant students will um they're almost all chinese will like basically be always um speaking mandarin and having this like very different cultural norm and a lot of the domestic students who are chinese also speak mandarin Mm -hmm. you have this like weird asymmetry where um basically like that we have like a trickle trickle down of like social conservatism and yeah, it's, it's just wonderful. So, so like, I'm just saying, you know, like conservatives, you should consider both uh, ending affirmative action and uh, drastically increasing the number of foreign students at your universities um, definitely will destroy wokeness permanently. Um, and you look at all the other universities in Canada, you know, they're, they're like, absurdly woke yep um they are so they switched in very nicely the couple essays that i have in the book i have this uh, essay called the respect motive where i say the best predictor of whether a group will support a party is people support whatever whichever party respects them more and then i've got a follow-up why are Asians so democratic the respect motive in action where i say look in terms of issue views asian americans are natural republicans they're very socially conservative and they're rich the problem is just that Republicans don't show them enough respect. So if it comes down to who's going to feel better at an Indian wedding, I think it's pretty clear the Democrats are going to feel more comfortable at the Indian wedding, even though in terms of ideological positioning, it would make more sense for it to be the other way around. And yeah, here my advice is you've got to go and show respect to other groups if you want to build your coalition. The common reaction of, oh, I respect them just as much as anyone else. Yeah, that's why you're losing. You don't tell people that. You tell them how great they are. You you butter them up and you and you mean it. And, you know, a whole lot of being a politician that's successful is going to a bunch of different groups and saying, you guys are so great. You're wonderful. You're, you're, you're everything that makes this country great. And you go to another group and you say pretty much the same thing. And you just know enough details to make the story stick. This is how Republicans flip Catholics in the 70s and 80s. I mean, this is how, if they are going to have any success, they're going to proceed. They've got to go and get Asians on their side. Uh, Hispanics, they seem to be doing better with. And again, I think this fits my respect motive story of, on the one hand, Republicans say a lot of mean things about Hispanic immigrants. On the other hand, you've got Democrats who are saying this Latinx stuff, which really rubs Hispanics the wrong way. Like, who are you to go and change our freaking language? <laughs> right. It, it, it goes back to the thing we were talking about last podcast, right? It's all about, it's all about making friends. It's all about kind of the, mm-hmm. the non- it, it's like very non-rationalist, right? It's yeah. very much about that yeah. kind of... I mean, but especially um, when you dignity. see that, that there's a group where their issue views are very consistent with yours and they still don't like you, that's where, like, what else could it be other than they don't feel like you like them? 
Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. This is what also what we should be doing, I think, in libertarianism yeah. should be. Yeah, we, yeah. we should be um, charisma maxing. All right. So, so last question of the show. Everyone always gets this mm-hmm. is the last question of the show. What is something that's too much order and something that is too much chaos and uh, preferably that we haven't talked about yet today? Let's see. I guess the too much order would be what it takes to go and build housing. The amount of rules are ridiculous. The amount of opportunities are amazing. And yet most of what we could do, we can't do. So yeah, if we could just go and buy up historic homes in San Francisco, bulldoze them and put skyscrapers up without any further permission, what an incredible world that would be. But uh, we got too much order. It stops us from going and transforming the world in these creative ways. It's because there's people, oh God, that'd be so terrible. In terms of not enough order, kind of want to say something about dating. It's a little unclear where to go with that. But just when I talk to young people doing dating apps, it seems like even though on the one hand you've got an algorithm, it's still pretty chaotic in terms of how it actually gets realized. A lot of it, of course, is the customers are not really thinking that clearly. I've got young people that I know say, well, I mean, all I meet on Tinder are a bunch of girls that want me to take them on the most expensive date possible. And it's like, yeah, well, maybe you shouldn't be on Tinder then. Maybe you should be look, doing something else. Like there's a, there's a range of apps that are sorting people into other categories. So yeah, like if you say you want to go and find a girlfriend, then don't be on the app that's about short-term dating. Come on. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I really want to be with someone super good looking. It's like, well, you know, like, let me tell just you. Just saying, well, conservatives. Yeah. Think of the dating markets if we have open borders. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you know, like this is something that I've written about uh, quite a bit. Saying, like, I mean, basically every U.S. citizen has an incredible asset. They have the right to go and make another person an American citizen. All the, <laughs> yes, you really yeah. do. You possess this power. This is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to someone in the world. The problem is it's hard to find the right person, in particular. You really have to worry about someone who is only marrying you for a green card. Right. So this is one of the most important examples of what economists call atrometric information in the world, where, again, and here's the key thing, like the general view um, um, around the world is that American men are at least pretty much the best guys to marry, irrespective of their ability to make you a citizen. They're just considered to be the most sensitive, thoughtful, reasonable guys in the world. Maybe, maybe Sweden beats America, but in general, American men get stellar reviews around the world, pretty much everywhere except in America. <laughs> Do American men get uh, American men uh, get great reviews? So there's got to be someone out there in the world that would think that you are the bee's knees, someone who does not have the right to come to this country. It's not like they would have to pretend to like you. You're like you are intrinsically very likable just by being in this American group. It's just the problem of. You, it's really hard to know if a person actually wants to be with you or just wants you for the green card. It's pretty much the same problem of any super rich person who wants to get married. It's like, well, if I don't, if I date outside of my social class, then there's a good chance someone is just marrying me for my money and then that's going to ruin my life. So I don't want that. I guess I better date someone else that's, re- that's really rich so that I don't have to worry about them being with me for my money. Similarly, a lot of Americans probably are just marrying someone else in the US because that's the way that you know they're not marrying me to get a green card because they already have permission to be here. But if this is something where if people could go and figure out a way to actually match people up based upon genuine affinity across borders, this would be fantastic. 
Uh, and by the way, you are right that I think that almost all the gains are for American men marrying foreign women. There just aren't like what American women want is already basically here. And of course, there are there could be some guys in other countries that are even better, but it's not the same kind of thing. What American men are looking for exists all over the planet. What American women are looking for it does not exist uh, in such abundance all over the planet. It's much more restricted. So, yeah, this is something where for American men it is specifically. Uh, much a, a, a much better deal. So yeah, that would be if we could get some order there. We could figure out a way to get good matching. Then what a world would be. Uh, this would and again like in principle, this could let in you know, hundred million foreign women to the U.S. in a generation. That's all it would really take is if we could just go and crack this puzzle. This this is amazing. This is an amazing. Uh, way to end it. I kind of want to go on uh, much more on this topic. You know, open open borders and dating. What are the what are the yeah. economic forecasts? But maybe yeah. that'll be for another time. Thanks so much for coming on. My Brian. pleasure. Thanks again, Brian. All right, and uh, remember, so the book is uh, Voters of Mad Scientists: Essays on Political Rationality. Twelve bucks on Amazon. Nine ninety nine is an ebook. Brian Chow says that I'm totally underpricing it, but my mistake can be your gain. So bye now. Yeah, go buy his book. Uh, thanks for coming on again. All right, thanks a lot, Brian. All right, see you around. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Brian Kaplan. As I said at the beginning, the best way to help the show is to let a friend know, either in person or online. You can also subscribe to the From the New World Substack, where I'll be writing on fairly related topics, both political economy and AI, two of the big topics that we discussed uh, today. I've had much more time to make posts to the Substack more recently, so if that's something that you can have checked out of, maybe then now is a good time to return to it. And as always, I'll have another great episode for you next week. See you then.